Today, debt and power. Hello again, it's Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics. Welcome to the latest post covering finance and problem news with a distinctively Australian flavour. Today it's my pleasure to introduce Michael Hudson, American economist, professor of economics and author of Killing the Host and Forgive Them Their Debts. In the current environment, I think those are great titles. Michael, welcome. Good to be here. Now, um, you have been following the economy and the questions of debt for quite some time, and I'd like to start the discussion with a simple question. How much debt is too much debt? Uh, too much debt is when it's beyond the ability to be paid. And at a certain point, every debt grows beyond the ability to be paid because of the magic of compound interest. Uh, if you're taking 5% interest, that doubles the principle of any debt every 15 years. And if you can imagine, uh, since the whole debt takeoff in 1945, well, the first 15 years gets you to 1960, that doubles. Then 1975, that doubles again. Then uh, 1990, then uh, 2005, and then today, you've had a lot of doubling times of debts. And it's actually uh, grown much more than uh, uh, 5%. Uh, it's grown uh, more like... Uh, uh, 15% uh, per year. So uh, too much debt is when it can't be paid. And what happens when a debt can't be paid? Well, either you default and you lose your property and the creditors foreclose on your home or uh, drive you into bankrupt. Or if you're a corporation, they uh, drive you under and a, a uh, corporate raider takes you over. Uh, or else you write down the debt. Now, for thousands of years in uh, the ancient Near East, and uh, when debt was first invented, sometime in the third millennium BC, uh, uh, maybe 2800, 2700, uh, interest-bearing debt, I mean, uh, the, the first records are about 2500 uh, BC. Uh, interest rates were about uh, 20%, but rulers thought, how are we going to maintain economic balance uh, and avoid too much debt. And the answer is, uh, when any new ruler would take the throne, they would proclaim a clean slate, uh, basically a jubilee year. Uh, the Babylonian jubilee year was almost word for word what it was in Leviticus 25. You'd cancel the personal debts, not the business debts, but just the personal debts, mainly agrarian debts, uh, denominated in grain. You'd return land to uh, debtors who'd for forfeited them to foreclosing creditors, and you'd free any of the debtors who'd fallen into debt bondage. So they avoided too much debt uh, periodically by uh, regularly wiping out the debt. Uh, you had this put in the middle of Leviticus, uh, uh, mid middle of Mosaic law uh, in Leviticus 25. Uh, and that was really in the Near East. Western civilization became Western by making a radical break from everything that went before. Western civilization in Greece and Rome didn't have any debt cancellations because they didn't have any palatial authority. They had chieftains, but they didn't have an independent palace with uh, authority to overrule uh, the um, basically ambitious 
uh, families that became the oligarchy. So uh, from the time uh, that the Roman oligarchy overthrew the last king in 509 BC, down to the time that Julius Caesar was killed uh, in 44 BC, uh, you had five centuries of constant debt revolts. And uh, the, uh, pop, the plebeians in Rome, just like many, many Greeks before, uh, demanded that debts be canceled. Uh, and uh, that was basically the call for democracy in Greece and in Rome was uh, you needed political democracy where you would have uh, everybody able to vote and to serve in the government in order to have a government that could cancel the debts and redistribute the land. Uh, in the seventh and sixth centuries, most Greek cities were overthrown by people called tyrants uh, who were basically reformers who overthrew the closed aristocracy and canceled the debts and redistributed the lands to the people. Uh, so, uh, Solon did that in Athens in 594 BC, the uh, Scythopia, the shedding of burdens, meaning the debt burdens. Uh, and uh, the same thing had happened in Sparta uh, earlier. Uh, but then Greece ultimately was uh, conquered and sacked and looted by Roman generals first in 147 BC and then in 88 BC under Sulla. And uh, Rome took over and uh, the Roman oligarchy was very intransigent. Uh, they accused uh, anyone wanting to cancel the debts, any popular leader of seeking kingship and usually killed them. They killed the Gracchi, they killed uh, the, uh, uh, the leader, any, any leader of the revolution, uh, they ended up killing Caesar, uh, they killed Catiline when he uh, failed to become uh, uh, consul and uh, organized the whole army to fight for debt cancellation. So there are uh, long backgrounds. Well, finally, the emperors, Emperor Justinian uh, and Hadrian, uh, both uh, canceled uh, the debts. By that time, they were mainly tax debts. Uh, but after that, there were no, no debt cancellations. And Western civilization is very different from the Near East. Uh, all, the legacy of Roman law is you can't cancel the debts. You can't write them down. And so that means that again and again and again, uh, debts are going to grow too big to be paid without forfeiting your land or forfeiting your liberty and falling into bondage or uh, losing your means of support or uh, going bankrupt. Uh, and that's the, uh, what we're facing today. Uh, is society going to say a debt has to be paid? Uh, almost all, 90% of American debts are owed to the richest 10% of the population. And I'm sure the uh, situation is similar in uh, Australia. Uh, and the 10%, of course, owe it to the uh, London and the uh, New York banks. Uh, are you going to let this uh, wealth and income and property all be sucked upward as a massive uh, debt foreclosure? Or are you going to say, we've got to uh, restore uh, equilibrium by just wiping out this enormous overgrowth of debt uh, that really you should think of it as bad loans. Uh, if there's a bad debt that can't be paid, that means there's a bad loan. And the uh, essentially modern economic orthodoxy agrees with the Roman oligarchy. All debts have to be paid, even if it uh, destroys society and ends up in feudalism. Uh, we're going to do it because that's our morality. 
It's a scary thought, isn't it? And is there a difference between public debt, in other words, government debt, versus private debt? Does it behave in the same yeah. way? As I think Steve Kane explained on your shows before, uh, the uh, public debt really can't go bankrupt uh, domestically because governments can simply print the money to monetize it uh, or just refuse uh, to pay the debt. Uh, private debt uh, is created by uh, what uh, Steve calls endogenous banking. Uh, in other words, banks simply create debt uh, on a computer uh, with a balance sheet. And uh, pu- uh, private debt is created for different reasons from public debt. If you had public banking, uh, uh, public banks would not lend for corporate takeover loans. They would not lend to corporate raiders. They would not lend for stock buybacks. Uh, they would not lend, uh, make junk mortgages uh, that were way beyond uh, the ability of uh, uh, mortgage borrowers to pay and guaranteed uh, to collapse. Uh, they would make uh, a government debt would be extended, presumably, for spending for the public purpose to increase economic growth, to increase prosperity. Private debt is created to reduce prosperity, to shift prosperity from 90% of the population to the 10% of the population that controls the banks and the creditors. So private debt is corrosive and parasitic, and public debt, if handled well, unless it's in uh, the oligarchy have taken over the government, uh, I, where could that be, uh, unless they uh, do something wrong? Like in, a, in the United States, since 2008, the Federal Reserve has created $4.5 trillion of credit all into the stock and real and bond market and mortgage market to, to support the price of real estate, to make housing more expensive so that the banks can uh, collect on their mortgages and not go under and to keep the debt overhead in place. So an enormous amount of debt, the public debt has been created simply to uh, keep the uh, 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 keep the financial system afloat instead of facing the reality that you have to write it down. Well, this four and a half trillion isn't really called public debt because it's technically a swap, and so it doesn't appear as an increase in the money supply. Uh, the increase in the money supply will be uh, what President Trump uh, uh, proclaimed today, March 19th, uh, $50 billion to the airlines uh, like, uh, and Boeing. Now, Boeing has spent $45 billion in the last 10 years on stock buybacks. So Trump said if, if companies have spent 90, 92 to 95% of all of their income just to buy shares and to pay out as dividends instead of investing it, we're going to, give all, we're going to create money and we're going to give it to them all again. Because the measure of priority, there's only one measure. How well is the stock market doing? And the stock market, uh, in other words, how uh, uh, much does the economy have to shrink in order to keep sucking up an exponentially growing volume of interest to cover all of this uh, uh, private uh, debt, bond debt, corporate debt, uh, business debt, and personal debt. Right. And so the obvious question then is, who are central banks working for? Uh, Central banks are all working for their clients, the commercial banks. Uh, In 1913, uh, uh, until 1913 in the United States, the Treasury did almost everything that the Federal Reserve is doing today. It moved money around the country. It had 12 districts. Uh, It would intervene in markets. Uh, It would do what a central bank did. 
But uh, then J.P. Morgan and the bankers said, let's uh, essentially, uh, they anticipated Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan uh, by half a century. They said, let's create a central bank. We're going to exclude Washington. We're not going to let uh, the Treasury and Washington have a voice on the board. Banking should be done only by the private sector, because only that way can we take over the government and turn it from a democracy into an oligarchy. So that they created a central bank that acted on behalf of the bankers, not on behalf of the economy, as treasuries would do. So basically, uh, the development of central banks for the Western countries has been a disaster to the extent that they uh, represent the financial interests instead of representing the economic interests as a whole, overseeing the financial interests and preventing finance from uh, destroying the economy. Right. And I suppose that explains why they are focused on financial stability rather than the uh, you know, prosperity of real people. What they call what you just use the word financial stability. Financial stability means increasing austerity for the economy. You cannot have financial stability and economic stability at the same time. If uh, the growth of debt and finance is exponential like that, then uh, and the, uh, the economy is growing in sort of an S-curve, uh, then the economy has to shrink and shrink in order to maintain stable stock market growth and even stock market prices. All of this uh, mathematics was developed uh, already in uh, Hammurabi's day in 1800 BC. We have the textbooks that uh, in cuneiform that were taught to scribal students in Babylonia. And uh, they would be asked to calculate how fast does a, uh, a, a debt uh, grow at 20%? How long does it take a debt to double? Uh, at uh, the going 20% rate of interest? The answer is five years. How long does it take to quadruple? 10 years. How, how long to uh, multiply eight times? 15 years. How many? 16 times. Uh, well, that's 20 years. In, uh, in other words, you, uh, within a generation, you have a debt increasing 64 times. Now, we also have the scribal text for how fast does a, a herd of cattle grow? Uh, it grows in an S-curve. Uh, and so you know that the gap between the rise in debt and the growth of a herd is is absolutely vast. Now, uh, most of the uh, loans that were not canceled were in foreign trade, and they were denominated in silver, uh, whereas the domestic debts were denominated in uh, in grain. And so unless Sumer could keep uh, trading abroad and making profits, uh, then there was going to be uh, uh, debts being too large to be paid. And that's when uh, rulers would come and and raise the sacred torch, like the Statue of Liberty, which was a sign of a debt cancellation. And uh, they'd uh, cancel the debts. If the crops failed, they'd cancel the debts because if they didn't cancel the debts, then the uh, small farmers, the small uh, small holders would end up... uh, becoming bond servants to the creditors, very often the tax collectors in the palace bureaucracy. Uh, and then they'd owe the labor to the creditors and they couldn't perform corvée labor, building uh, palaces and walls and the kind of thing, uh, the public building labor, and they couldn't serve in the army. So it would have been suicide not to uh, cancel the debt. So the uh, Sumerian rulers were not 
idealistic utopians. They were simply being practical in realizing that debts uh, uh, grow faster than the ability to be paid. And all of their mathematics showed that. So their models 4,000 years ago were more sophisticated than the models that are used today that just assume debts is part, are going to remain constant. Right. So I guess that then begs the question, you know, we've got all of this pile of debt and it's growing. And of course, the recent central bank interventions are just adding more debt into the system. How do we get out of this mess then? The only way you can do it is to write down the debts. And that means you have to let the banks go under. Uh, and that almost happened in 2008. And uh, Sheila Baer, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation head, uh, wanted to foreclose on uh, one bank, she said, was more crooked and uh, more incompetent than all the others. And that was uh, the largest bank. That was Citibank. The problem is that the president of America, uh, Citibank, was the government. Uh, The uh, sponsors of President Obama uh, were basically Robert Rubin and Wall Street who was the secretary of the treasury under Bill Clinton. And uh, he became head of Citibank and his protege, Tim Geithner, became the bagman for Citibank and Wall Street and was made uh, treasury secretary. And uh, Geithner uh, blocked uh, the Obama administration and Sheila Bear from taking over Citibank. And here would have been a wonderful chance. You take over the crookedest uh, bank in the United States uh, that had made uh, all the bad bets, uh, made junk mortgage loans. It, had, it was a serial criminal, uh, as Bill Black of uh, the University of Missouri at Kansas City has shown. Uh, and uh, the, it, imagine if Citibank would have been taken into the public domain and made a public bank, uh, it wouldn't have made crooked loans. It wouldn't have acted like a crook. It would have made loans to uh, for what people actually needed and business actually needed. But uh, Geithner turned and uh, Obama uh, invited the bankers to the White House. uh, And he said, I'm protecting you from the mob with pitchforks. The mob with pitchforks were his voters, his supporters, the people that uh, Hillary called deplorables, uh, mainly wage earners. He said, I'm protecting you from this. Don't worry. And uh, he he, uh, bailed out the banks so that none of them, uh, not only did they not go under, they're now gigantic as a result of uh, uh, the bailouts and uh, uh, Obama's driving out the uh, small, smaller banks. But Obama uh, let, let the bank, he didn't write down the mortgages as he promised to do. Uh, he was, prob- I think he w- was the worst president in a century. Everything he said was a total lie. He'd promised to write down the mortgage debts to the realistic value of the buildings instead of the inflated value that uh, Citibank and Bank of America and Wells Fargo and other crooked banks had put on them. Uh, he, instead, he uh, said, okay, go ahead, foreclose on, ten, on the 10 million American homes, uh, knock them out, and that's really uh, a great uh, wealth-producing activity because now large uh, Wall Street companies like Blackstone can come in and buy all of these homes that are foreclosed upon at pennies on the dollar and then turn them into rental properties and raise the rents on Americans uh, very rapidly 
and uh, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll get rich by squeezing the working class and leaving them with really nothing to uh, spend on goods and services. So Obama made the decision uh, basically to impose uh, austerity on the economy. Since 2008, uh, the GDP for 95% of the American population has actually shrunk. All the growth in America's GDP has occurred only to the wealthiest 5% of the population. That's Obamanomics. Uh, and that's basically the Democratic Party. And the reason President Trump was elected here was he made a left uh, run around uh, Hillary and the Democratic Party. And he's doing it again uh, in the, today. And that's why mo most people expect, Trump, despite uh, Trump's mishandling of the uh, a virus situation. Uh, they expect him to be to the left of Joe Biden or Hillary or whoever the uh, Democrats uh, decide to run. So you've made a really interesting connection there between the political forces in the economy and the financial forces. And essentially, it's those two against the people, isn't it? Well, that's what you call an oligarchy. Mm. Uh, it has the trappings of democracy because you can vote now for either uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, and they call that a democracy. But both of them work for Wall Street, so uh, and both of them represent the oligarchy. So uh, it's sort of it's what in the 19th century was called a sham democracy. Right, and so the um, appearance of what's going on and the reality of what's going on is actually quite different. The reality uh, is, it's. I think the appearance is exactly what it is. The mm. appearance is utterly corrupt takeover by the oligarchy and a deliberate impoverishment of the rest of the population. Mm. And you have the right wing uh, uh, radio, Fox News and Rush Limbaugh, saying uh, the outbreak is a godsend to America. Look at look at how it's stabilizing the economy. Number one, it basically wipes out uh, uh, the elder older people get sick the most rapidly. That means finally we can cut Social Security spending by uh, the dying off of the elderly people. Uh, and that's looked at as positive. Uh, the mass unemployment, uh, large-scale disease, uh, I think on uh, uh, numerous reporters who said, well, the world's overpopulated. Uh, we've got to send it out. Uh, uh, it, it's, uh, and it gave Trump an excuse to give enormous bailouts to uh, Boeing and to the airline companies that were... Uh, already near insolvency as a result of their own debt problem. So uh, they used the crisis not to uh, help revive the economy, but to just pound the economy into uh, debt deflation, leaving the debts in place while uh, bailing out the banks uh, and the, uh, uh, the landlord class, basically. But, so that while people are losing their jobs, uh, especially if you're a part-time worker or a uh, you work in the stores, the retail industry, bars, restaurants, uh, you're, uh, you're laid off. You can't pay your rents. That means that your employers also, the small businesses, can't pay their rents. Already there for rent signs all up and down the big streets here in New York and Queens. Uh, and uh, the landlords are unable to pay the banks because they don't have tenants. So there's a whole... Uh, uh, a rising arrears for all kinds of debts. That's one way you tell when a debt is too large to be paid. Are the uh, arrears in the missed payments and uh, 
uh, mounting, and they're up to 30 or 40 percent for student debts. Uh, they're they're rising for automobile loans, uh, mortgage debts uh, uh, are in arrears. So uh, basically, the coronavirus uh, has become uh, a vehicle to bail out uh, the, both the landlord class and the banks and keep them afloat while sacrificing the uh, the wage earning population. So if you run history ahead over the next, you know, let's say three to five years, let's assume that, uh, you know, they actually find a way to uh, get the um, uh, health issue under control. Um, what you're saying is at the end of it, essentially most ordinary people will be hollowed out further and the power and authority will be ever more concentrated in that rich elite who own the banking system and also own the political system. That's the trend. In the 1830s, when Malthus's successor at a Haleybury College, uh, William Nashville Sr., was asked uh, uh, what uh, a million people, Irishmen, died in the potato famine, uh, Nassau Sr. said, it is not enough, meaning it's not enough to balance the economy. Uh, you, uh, you need uh, many more. Uh, when... When there's poverty in an economy, suicide rates go up, emigration goes up. You can look at Greece uh, in the last five years to see what happens when an economy is uh, debt strapped. Uh, uh, lifespans shorten, people get sick, suicides rate, Greek, uh, rate uh, rise, uh, Greeks emigrate abroad. Uh, that The problem is that Americans can't emigrate because they don't speak a foreign language. Uh, it, it looks uh, really pretty bad, and there's no economic theory here that uh, deals clearly with uh, what's happening to explain that if you have to pay this exponential growth in debt, then you're going to have less and less to buy goods and services, and uh, more and more stores are going to close, and uh, labor will be laid off, and nobody can afford to go to work, and that's what happens in a depression. And that really is uh, the game plan. That's called financial stability because uh, uh, th that's the price you have to pay to keep the uh, bad debt-based uh, financial sector afloat. And does that mean that unless we can find a completely different formula around democracy, and uh, I assume that means focusing much more on you know, public infrastructure, public investment, and all of those things, there's no alternative. And, and who's talking about that? Uh, well, a few people you have on your show seem to be talking about it, sure. uh, but not many. Uh, we're a small group of maybe 15 people who have a sort of common discussion about it. Mm. Right. So it is still a minority sport, and yet it seems to me to be probably the most critical debate we should be having because, you know, we have the bulk of the population effectively being crushed by the way that the system is currently working, and yet everyone is told to look over there and watch Netflix rather than actually think about some of these more fundamental issues. Well, one of the problems is that uh, since about the late 1970s, uh, the University of Chicago and the neoliberals have taken over the editorship of almost all the uh, ac leading academic journals in this country, in England, and elsewhere. So they're all run by neoliberals who represent basically the oligarchic uh, pro-financial uh, economics. That means that uh, I was teaching at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, the Center of Modern Monetary Theory. That means that our graduates uh, really couldn't get 
hired, had difficulty getting hired in prestigious uh, universities, because in order to get hired by a prestigious university, you have to publish in one of the journals run by the uh, uh, Chicago censors. Uh, the the uh, key of free market economics is you can't have a free market unless you can exclude everybody who disagrees with you. Uh, you can't have a free market in Latin America, uh, in Chile, for instance, they said, unless you're willing to kill every labor leader, every advocate of land reform, unless you did what they did. They closed every economics department in Chile, except for the uh, Catholic university that taught uh, uh, the uh, Friedmanite Chicago dogma. So uh, libertarianism is totalitarianism. Uh, libertarianism means uh, uh, you uh, make a small government and uh, if the government is small, who's going to do the planning? Because every economy is planned. And if uh, the governments don't do the regulating and the planning, there's only one alternative. Wall Street does the planning or the city of London, uh, including the planning for Australia, from what I understand. Right. And the consequence there is that freedom... Um, which everybody sort of espouses as being, you know, the character of modern society is probably less strong than many people think. Well, the Romans described uh, liberty as uh, the ability to do whatever you want. And they said, therefore, only the wealthy people could have liberty <laughs> because they're the only people who can do whatever they want, including uh, depriving other people of their liberty. Michael, I found this a really fascinating and interesting conversation and so critical for people to understand. I really thank you for your time today. Um, well, the good news is that there are many more articles and interviews on your website, michaelhudson.com, who I understand is created in Australia by a webmaster here. So that's an interesting yes, connection. That's right. By mm. Carol Fitzgerald, in, uh, uh, not in Sydney, but in Melbourne. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today, and I really appreciate it. And uh, stay safe in the current uh, uh, crisis that we have. And, um, you know, we'll be pushing this message out far and wide. We'll be making a transcript of this particular show and making that available as well as the YouTube version. Well, thanks a lot. I like the discussion. Thanks very much. So there you have it. Real truth there from Michael with regard to what is going on and so relevant given the current issues we're seeing today. I'm Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics. Many thanks for watching, and I'll see you again next time.